We all want to feel like we belong, but sometimes it's challenging to find connection in our living spaces, neighborhoods, communities, and relationships. On Home Where You Belong, we're here to change that. Hear stories of people from different backgrounds and from different places and how they've been able to feel more at home to help give you a renewed sense of connection, belonging, and optimism. Welcome to Home Where You Belong with your host, Chip Alford. The Continuum Care is not an agency or a group of agencies. It's the community. It's anyone who's uh, passionate or dedicated around preventing and ending homelessness. Um, we have private citizens. We have the faith-based community. Um, we're, we're always looking to grow that that membership of the Continuum of Care because it, it's going to take all of us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Home Where You Belong. I hope all of you are looking forward to spending time with family and friends during the Thanksgiving holiday at your home or theirs or wherever you choose to celebrate. One of the reasons I launched this podcast was to help people feel more at home in their living spaces, wherever that may be. Sadly, on any given night in America, more than half a million people are experiencing homelessness. That includes individuals and families, adults, teenagers, and children who have no place to call their own. Homelessness is a national crisis, but it doesn't have to be a hopeless situation. As you express thanks this week for all of life's blessings, I hope you'll also pause to remember those who don't have a home to go to during the holidays or on any day. Some of you may be serving meals in homeless shelters on Thanksgiving or taking food and clothing to the unsheltered. Others may make donations to churches, charities, and nonprofits that are addressing the problem. All of those actions are commendable and needed, but there is more that we can do. Today, I want to introduce you to a man who experienced homelessness himself as a child and young adult, and who has committed himself to helping put an end to the problem in his community and state. Mike Smith is executive director of the Chattanooga Regional Homeless Coalition in Tennessee. The coalition leads, coordinates, and strengthens efforts to prevent and end homelessness throughout Southeast Tennessee. Mike has extensive experience with federally funded homeless assistance programs and has been directly involved in securing over $100 million in funding that helped shape the systems of care across many communities in Tennessee over the past two decades. His leadership and knowledge played a key role in effectively ending veteran homelessness in a 23-county area in West Tennessee in 2018 and is helping Southeast Tennessee work towards preventing and ending youth and young adult homelessness across the region over the next two years. Mike, welcome to Home Where You Belong. I appreciate you taking some time out today to be with us. Well, thanks for having me. It's, it's an honor to come have the conversation with you, especially around the subject of homelessness. Thanks. I appreciate that. Um, there's a lot of things I'd like to cover today, but before we get into the kind of extent of the crisis and learning more about that, um, I'd like to just know a little bit more about you and your experience with homelessness. Can you tell our listeners a little more about your background and maybe how you became homeless and what that experience was like? Sure. Um, homelessness has been ingrained in my life since my very earliest memory um thinking back is you know people ask me what my oldest memory is i was playing in this old school bus and i was just alone and i was coming outside of the school bus and my mother was sitting around a little campfire cooking dinner and she brought me over and she's like mikey remember to keep the fire low and it didn't occur to me until many years later what she was trying to show me was that it wasn't safe Ooh. to be doing what we were doing 
to, to be in that situation, especially for a single mother with a small child. Um, we experienced homelessness a couple times throughout my childhood, and then in my later uh, teenage years and into my early adulthood, my mother had um, moved on um, to another place. My mother had severe mental illness, um, amongst other things, severe uh, substance abuse disorder. And at the time, I, I was precariously housed in rural Tennessee, and well, that didn't last long. I mean, mm. didn't have the skill set there to be able to maintain, let alone income. Um, so I found myself in an unsheltered, unsheltered situation in rural Tennessee for around two years. Um, even at that time, I didn't think of myself as homeless. Um, maybe it's the glory of youth, but I found ways to make mental games out of survival. So what what was a typical day like, or how, where would you stay at night, or how would you... There, a lot of options would present themselves, mm -hmm. um, and one of those was just staying open. Sometimes I would couch hop, mm -hmm. um, especially during the winter months. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes I would stay in abandoned buildings. Um, there's a little creek in West Tennessee that is still very cherished part of my life, and I visited it often because that was my own little sanctuary at times when weather permitting. Mm -hmm. um, and a, a lot of times when inclement weather or things like that, you know, the community would show a lot of grace um, by allowing me in. Um, then one, one, one winter it, it got really cold and I was worried um, about survival. Sure. Um, but so I asked around, um, at the time, I avoided churches um, just because of some bad experiences we'd had in my childhood, but um, and not anything to do with any of the individual churches that were in the area. Mm -hmm. um, we just moved around a lot. Sure. Um, but I got told that there was an opening in a program about 100 miles away, um, so I worked my way up there getting rides and got to this facility and walked in and asked them about their opening. And they said, well, you have to have a disabling condition. And I didn't. So I walked out on the porch, and I'm looking around, and that's that existential crisis moment of where do I go now? Um, right. Where, you know, I'm looking at just quickly analyzing, like, what uh, cops of trees or where I don't, I don't know where to go to get food here. I don't know anything. What are the options, right? Yeah. Um. And this is a moment that completely changed my life because the manager of this facility, he walked out and he's like, Mike, just sit down with me for a minute and let's talk. No other options. Yeah, let's talk. <laughs> His name was Dan. And I still, I repeat Dan's name as much as possible because um, what he did in the next moment saved my life and then also saved countless lives as a result. Um, Dan told me, he's, he's like, Mike, I, we're cooking dinner. Um, I've got a room. When we go back inside, just say you have a disability. So I did. Um, and I ate really well that night and slept like a baby. Um, and that, that really, that moment of grace has defined my career um, and how I approach uh, efforts to end homelessness. Because mine ended, and I believe that there is an effective end to all homelessness. 
Um, in the meantime, I work on saving one life at a time. Even though I don't work uh, client-facing anymore, I did for many years, but uh, now I don't. So it's really about that system building okay, and doing so with that, that level of grace built into it. That's awesome. Um, thanks for sharing that story. I, it's, um, you know, must have been a tough time, but it sounds like you... What, what did you take away from that experience, I guess? That, well, there, there's many things, and I still mm. deal partly with some of the trauma from that. Um, sure. While the community was very uh, beneficial and helpful at times, um, there was others that weren't. And, you know, being overlooked or looked at like you're less than human uh, is a difficult thing. And, and it, while it's impactful in the moment that the individual is experiencing it, the long-term effects of that are hard to deal with, um, and it creates a lot of distrust in people. Or, you know, you you really think of your self-worth and your value, uh, and you question it. And it was just because of someone's looks or comments um, for a situation that you had no control over. Mm-hmm. I mean, I there was no way for me at that point in my life to have sustained. I, I didn't have resources. And there's so many different reasons why people are homeless, right? We'll, there are. We'll talk about that in a minute. But um, when did you decide that you wanted to, uh, to make ending homelessness, you know, your career, part of your life's work? How did that kind of come into being? Sure. Uh, the, the facility that I was staying at, um, I'd been there about six months, and they had an opening for a, it was like a security tech position um, with the, the with that agency, and so I applied for it and successfully got it. And then what I started doing was coming in four hours early each day and volunteering to help the case managers work on uh, case management things, reporting, building out uh, policy, because I just had a knack for it. Mm. Um, throughout my life, I've always been an avid reader and just kind of a little bit of a, a nerd. <laughs> um, but was able to, that's how it started. And then there was another opening, which actually was for case management. And even though I liked the degree, uh, the, the executive director of that company decided to take a chance at it. Okay. Um, and then I really excelled at it. And part of that, because I had that lived experience, um, was able to engage with people, uh, authentically and assist them to uh, overcome their barriers to housing stability. Um, and one thing led to another. I ended up run, running that program and we pursued several different federal grant opportunities. And so I was able to apply um, through the Department of Housing and Urban Development and the Federal Home Loan Bank of Cincinnati for some acquisition dollars. And we started purchasing units and developing them for people with uh, co-occurring disorders hmm. that were experiencing homelessness. Um, it was really kind of a pilot project at the time. Um, and then started engaging with peers across the community um, in what's known as a continual care. Um, because at that time, was the HUD was releasing guidance that communities that receive federal assistance or federal homeless assistance funds needed to all talk to each other and be at the same table. Okay. Start common um, data collection practices. Um, and so I rose real quickly into the leadership of that continual care um, and began starting nonprofits um, to assist in efforts where there had been gaps. Um, and really 
really looking at the structure of these programs um, and the fact even the one that I had come into and other ones, especially like substance abuse treatment programs that were receiving homeless assistance dollars, they were requiring sobriety, um, maintained sobriety from people with substance abuse disorder and their housing was contingent upon it and it just didn't seem right. Um, they're now, it's, things have changed now, but at that time, so what we were doing, we would, we would target the individual projects and then develop the policies out from there while ensuring, uh, that we were client focused and the housing portion of that was treated like any other tenant landlord relationship. Um, now that model is formally known as housing first, um, in which, the belief is that someone experiencing homelessness, if you can survey a hundred or a thousand people of what they need, the first thing is housing. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, Maslow's hierarchy needs directly relates right, to that. Right, right, right. Um, so the, the model now is federally adopted and, and many programs follow that model in which you offer the, the, the shelter, the, the and not emergency shelter, even though that can play a piece, um, you offer that housing um, component first and then follow up with robust support services. There's a lot of national attention right now from uh, some opposition of the Housing First model um, saying things like, well, it's just giving away free houses. And that's not what it is. That's a misunderstanding. It's Housing First and then. The okay. service component is, of this is crucial to successfully attain housing stability in, in the long term. But if, but if you don't have shelter or if you don't have a place to live, yeah. it's it's hard to work on the other is. the issues that you're facing, right? Yeah, I mean, you'll even if even in urban environments. I, I came from a rural area, so I, it would have been hard for me to navigate an urban environment. But I'm sure I could have adjusted. That's one thing that we know about people experiencing homelessness is they have an amazing uh, ability to adapt to their circumstances and survive. Um, but if you're tied to one area where all your worldly possessions belong or where you know it's safe, it's hard to, you know, the, the expression, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Well, if you don't have boots <laughs> or if you, you can't, you don't have the luxury of leaving. Um, and again, I mentioned the urban environments because you see higher concentrations and density of encampments, which become barriers in themselves um, and safety concerns as well. Um, I I want to talk to you more about, you know, solutions and what you've already been describing, how, how we can address this. But let's to kind of, you know, maybe uh, take a step back for a second. Mm -hmm. I want to share a couple of statistics that I came across when looking into this. Um, according to the National Alliance to End Homelessness, in January 2020, there were 580,466 people, over half a million people, experienced homelessness uh, on American streets and in shelters. Most were individuals, but there were um, people and families with children, lived in every state and territory, include people from every gender, every race, every ethnic group. And then closer to home, I found a couple different statistics. You might be able to shed some light on this. Um, in Chattanooga, there was a report in 2021 that found about 1,500 people experience homelessness in our area daily, which had been an increase of 129% over the previous report. Um, and then there was another report that, you know, found 3,000 persons. So uh, help us understand, I guess, what, what do you, th what comes to mind when you hear those numbers and how accurate do those seem to you? Sure. It's actually my office that helps conduct that count. Okay. Um, it, it requires that every community conduct the point in time count typically in the last week or last 10 days of January. 
Um, this year we had adjusted it to um, March just because there was a COVID flare up in, in the homeless response system. And so we didn't want to bring that to the encampments. We, we do know that this is an accurate depiction of homelessness in our area. Um, it's the most thorough count that we've ever conducted. And, and part of that is because of the COVID protocols in which we take a little bit of time. Normally the point in time count is a blitz over a 24 hour period. Mm-hmm. It's difficult to do when there's a highly contagious uh, <laughs> pandemic. Yeah, they're telling you to distance and you're trying to count people, right? Right. And one uh, methodology plays a, a part in this as well because the numbers that you're reporting, like our continuum care is in 11 county regions, not just Chattanooga. Okay. Um, and so over the past two years since I've came here, um, really working with the community to understand how to conduct that count in rural areas. Mm-hmm. Um, because rural homelessness has a completely different face than urban homelessness. Um, and you'll, especially around Appalachia, what you'll see more common is, is not necessarily the encampments. You'll see people living in places not meant for habitation. Sure. Um, dilapidated campers, school buses, shacks, hovels. Um, even especially in Appalachia, we see it a lot. Well, all throughout Tennessee, West Tennessee and the Delta area, we see it as well. But uh, there's uh, generational homelessness where some family may actually own a little piece of land somewhere, um, but the structures that they've been residing in have never meant, they, they, they should be bulldozed, but they are out in rural areas, and so there's no sort of enforcement of that. But even I've even encountered some county officials in some rural counties that said, you know, what do we do? do it, it, we can't bulldoze it because where do they go? Yeah, right. So that's, in, that's interesting that you, because I think a lot of us, we tend to think of, homelessness is a big city problem, which it's which not. it is, right? But it's much bigger than that, isn't it? I mean, it's it it's everywhere. You, you're, you told your story earlier that was in a rural setting, right? It is. And and I, if they had conducted a point-in-time count when I was experiencing homelessness at that time in my life, I don't think that they would have even found me. Um, and we see it a lot in rural areas. Now, homelessness is not directly tied to poverty. We People under the poverty line live out their entire lives and may never encounter homelessness. Um, so we like to make that distinction because in a lot of rural areas you deal with some severe po- poverty, which it can be a contributing factor for the individual. Um, but, yeah, it, it's just completely different than rural areas, and we're learning as a nation. I mean, Tennessee's learned a lot um, throughout the course of my career, and, you know, and I've been helping drive that understanding of what rural homelessness looks like. And been excited because uh, the Department of Housing or Department of Housing and Urban Development released, recently released some additional funding to help build the capacity of rural um, facing providers to assist with that. Oh, that's great. That's I great. mean, that's a complete set aside, which is great because a lot of times the rural areas are not, they can't compete for funding in the same way that areas such as Nashville or LA or Austin or King County, Chicago. Um, so what HUD did in this recent um, funding announcement is they there was an unsheltered set aside, and that's primarily targeted towards the larger urban areas. Um, even though locally we've, we've competed for it, we'll see in a couple months. Um, but that rural set aside and, and HUD acknowledging that even the agencies that operate in those programs or in those areas need help with capacity. And so there's funding within there to increase capacity. So we're very excited to see how this p- plays out in the coming months because the deadline was yesterday. So. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Thanks for sharing that. Mike, let's, t- let's talk a little bit about um, what the major contributing factors are to homelessness. I know it's not just one thing, and it varies by 
individual and situation, but what, what are some of the common factors that contribute? Well, it's, I think it's easier to start with addressing a misconception around homelessness. Okay. Um, a lot of people perceive homelessness as a mental health or an addiction issue. Um, while those at times may be factors for the individual and it does increase your risk, um, it's not the case. Um, a lot of times uh, severe mental health disorders can develop from experiencing homelessness as well as substance sense. abuse disorders. Yeah, um, they, those can be seen as symptoms. Um, but some of the other, one of the larger, largest factors that we see is that there's a breakdown of resources, being family um, that could come from death, divorce, uh, many contributing factors right there, but it's that breakdown of a family structure. Um, we see homelessness disproportionately impacts communities of color mm. as well as um, LGBTQ, especially in young adults um, because it's, again, that, that it's a breakdown of a family resource or a family network. And sometimes these kids are thrown out of their homes or... It, it, yes. Uh, we yeah, used to work with the LGBTQ um, crisis counseling and we would find the same thing that a, a, a surprising number of people in the local homeless shelter were these kids who had you know been turned out of their homes yeah and the and, and one of the reasons that we see such a high disparity in communities of color um, experiencing homelessness or being at risk um, is because of a long history of systemic uh, well, systemic racism, let's call it for what it is. Um, redlining had a lot of effects on the African-American community, being able, families being able to build generational wealth. Um, they just didn't, weren't allowed that uh, opportunity. And this, this common expression of, you know, we're all just one or two paychecks away from experiencing homelessness is, is not true. Um, I know quite a few people that live paycheck to paycheck, but if that paycheck stopped, they have somewhere to go. Mm -hmm. They have family that will take them in. Now, we've all overstayed our welcome on someone's couch or <laughs> had you know family in our house for too long during the holidays um, and asked them to leave. But if it came down to us asking them to leave into an unsheltered situation, many of us wouldn't do so. Yeah. Um, that's, now, that's a good point. I never really thought it's really your connections or your family support can mm -hmm. play a big role because, you know, like when you were, you were saying that you were at that point where you were figuring out what were your options going to be when you didn't know where to go. If you don't have those kind of family connections, um, it obviously much more, much more challenging. Sure. And here's where a uh, part where, you know, poverty can come into play. If you're, if you live in a disenfranchised neighborhood or you're, you know, uh, area, you know, some of our larger cities, there's, you know, huge, areas of disenfranchised and poverty-ridden people. Well, here's where a breakdown can come and where poverty could play a role in it. If you lose your housing, but your family that would support you or bring you in, live in subsidized housing or federal housing that prohibits guests, uh -huh. then that's not a resource for you. Okay. Um, and so you run a higher risk. Um, there's many different factors. One of the highest risk factors for being homeless or becoming homeless is having been homeless before. Uh, talk, to, talk to me about that. Why do you, there, why do you think that is? The likely, because even I even have the part of my mindset thinks, you know, if I hit the streets today, I could still make it. You know, I, I've You've got that skill set. Yeah. yeah. And so I may not, and I can only speak for myself on that one, but, um, 
it could, when it gets to that point of crisis, I, I did survive. Um, so it, I, I could maybe not analyze a way, a pathway out as efficiently as someone who had never experienced it before. Okay. Um, so, you know, and nationally, we, we do contribute some of that, uh, the national returns to homelessness a- after positive housing placements to such a thing. Um, but there's also larger factors in returning to homelessness after positive housing placements. And a lot of that is the connection to community services hmm. and support services, um, but also belonging to a community. Um, we see it in, well, everywhere, but you'll see, you'll encounter it more often in large urban settings where they have larger encampments. That's their family. I've had people that turn down so housing. That, that's one of the reasons maybe then why they would be hesitant to leave, not mm-hmm. just because they're so attached to a structure or tent or whatever they're living in, but the people they're community. around is their family. Right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, that makes sense. Spending, you know, long, long periods of time with no family or no, and it, I mean, I've got family, but, but you know, we're estranged, but, um, we all have family stories. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so having that sense of community means a lot. Uh, those that are close to me, I cherish. Um, and, and I've seen it at times where, you know, programs are working with individuals and try to offer a housing placement and they want to bring everyone. Mm. Why wouldn't they? That's sure. their family. That's their family. Well, didn't we just say that, you know, your family would bring you in? Mike, you talked a little earlier about, you know, how important access to housing is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, talk a little bit about what's being done in that area um, and why is that so critical to, um, you know, ending homelessness to making a a real dent in addressing the crisis? Homelessness, by definition, is just homeless. You don't have a home. Um, So housing ends homelessness. That's, That's the only answer. Um, we can talk about support services and everything for dealing with the individual, um, but housing ends homeless, homelessness. And so nationally, COVID exacerbated so many things, but um, the cost of housing has jumped exponentially in many, in many markets here locally, even more so. Um, but we also we have a, a lack of stock in this area and throughout the country. So some of the efforts being done... Um, President Biden's uh, House America initiative is challenging local communities with the creation of more f- affordable subs- affordable units, not necessarily subsidized. Um, and real quick, though, on that, affordable housing can be a tricky word. Okay. Why is that? A lot of communities, when they say affordable housing, they are meaning 80% of the area median income. So they're targeting, they're saying, you know, we're talking about school teachers or firefighters by all means, everyone needs house. I believe everyone does. So professionals like me or people that work in my career, um, when we say affordable housing, we mean affordable from the scale of 0% income all the way through the spectrum. Um, So just, you know, be careful when you hear that term of affordable housing because not everyone uses it the same way because affordable should be affordable. Um, You shouldn't be... Definitions matter. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean... We all, it's commonly said that you shouldn't be anything over 30% of your income is rent burdened. Um, that's that's great way to look at it, even though most people are rent burdened by that definition. Right. Um, but allowing housing opportunities if you have no income. So, people with uh disabilities that aren't 
drawing um, their Social Security disability benefits or any other revenue source, you still have to be able to create a housing structure that can offer housing to them. And then, you know, you can plug in your support services and build out ways that they can they can earn or they can have income of some kind, but still place that percentage on them. So we have a breakdown, though, and, and people will bring up, you know, the housing projects did that or, you know, the public housing authorities. And a lot of public housing authorities are slowly uh, getting away from real property and they're moving more into the housing choice voucher program or Section 8 which that Section 8 voucher applies in the market. And part of the reason for this is, well, there's many different things. You will so at a high level, can you just tell us how that works, Section 8? So Section 8 is federally funded through the public housing authorities if someone makes below 30% area median income and qualifies. I mean, they can. there's certain types of criminal background behaviors. They would disqualify them as sure. well as other things. Um, if they apply, um, they can take that voucher then and find a unit in the market that meets the federal definition of fair market rent, okay. which is which is low. Um, but then they, they they can use that voucher, and the housing authority will make the payments to the landlord. So it's kind of like a three party agreement between the landlord, the housing authority, and the tenant themselves. Um, the problem there is that the ability to take those vouchers into a community with a very tight and competitive rental market, those vouchers don't land units. Um, The value of the voucher is way below what rent reasonable would be in in most communities. Um, And you also then you have concentrations of poverty throughout a community because it could be that one area of town has rents that can be applied for with the voucher. Um, so you'll see concentrations of poverty in a community. And we know um, there's been plenty of studies to show that if you want to break generational poverty, you, you have to disperse those communities and, and integrate uh, all levels of income throughout each neighborhood. Um, there's just countless studies on that and I would recommend that anyone listening to this just it's a simple Google search um, but so the voucher program itself it, it I'm not gonna knock it I mean it, it does help um, but when the when the public housing authorities could no longer keep up with the maintenance of the units because they weren't collecting rents and there wasn't any other funding stream to be able to maintain the, the housing projects um, a lot of them have taken those offline and so each community suffers because those are loss of actual units that were designed and were already on hand. There was, it was in the stock. Um, a lot of community responses were to increase the availability of additional uh, voucher programs or vouchers through the Housing Choice Voucher Program without adjusting for the fact that the market was getting tighter and tighter all along. And these vouchers are not, they're not competitive uh, to be able to secure a unit, especially for individuals. That's uh, one of the contributing factors that you see so many, so high a number for individuals. Um, th- these vouchers don't work. Okay. And th- this is generalized uh, so, for individuals that can. Let, let's talk a minute about what does work. What are, what are some of the solutions mm-hmm. that are, that are being effective? And, um, and, and if you can maybe 
make your particular organization, the Chattanooga Regional Homeless Coalition, the work that you do related to that as well? There's many different approaches that work. I mean, we mentioned Housing First earlier. Well, sure. that's, a, that's a model on how you carry about the housing programs. Um, for those with uh, persistent severe mental health issues or substance abuse issues, um, permanent supportive housing is the most effective approach. Um, permanent supportive housing is geared more towards chronically homeless, and that means that people have long periods of homelessness with a disabling condition. Um, those projects dramatically uh, reduce the amount of returns to the homeless from chronically homeless individuals and families. Um, another nationally uh, deployed model is the rapid rehousing program. Um, this is geared more towards people with lower acuity, um, lower barriers. Uh, it's meant to be a, a quick intervention to rapidly find them a unit and place them in housing, build up support services. But it's time limited. Uh, most programs follow or, or max out at 24 months. So it's really being you ha engaging in a progressive engagement approach throughout the operation of those programs get them in housing real quickly, and then work on stability. It's very, very actionable. It's not just a rental assistance program. This is, a, this is an emergency program. <clears throat> and it came about, that, the rapid rehousing model came about from the, uh, the housing market crash of 2008. Hmm. Some of the stimulus programs that started up after that um, were really about, there was families entering, families and individuals entering homelessness who never would have. Let's get them back into housing as quickly as possible because the longer you're on the streets, the higher your, as we said earlier, the higher your risk of developing serious mental health issues or substance abuse, and your barriers just become higher and higher. Um, and especially if you live in an area that has laws criminalizing homelessness, then you're likely to encounter, you know, build out your criminal background. Um, so these are these are really good models. Um, transitional housing is something that you know, if nationally, it goes back and forth whether or not you, it's being deployed. Um, transitional housing shows. Good success with persons with substance abuse disorders as well as veterans. Um, and transitional housing can look many different ways. It can be scattered site or it could be a, a single site structure. Um, but it's more meant to deal with uh, the barrier side of that or the, the issues contributing to the individual's homelessness while gearing them up to move on to more permanent housing. Is Can I ask a question about that? Is that is the, I heard a story about in Chattanooga that I believe the city bought a hotel or something and is re repurposing that and making that available as temporary housing or does that ring a bell or is that, does, does um, that relate to that or is that something different? No, it, it does. Well, it's, they purchased that hotel with the intention that they're going to stand up uh, an RFP soon uh, for a provider to run it, but they're going to convert those units into permanent supportive housing. Okay. So okay. those will be kind of SRO, sing, you know, single room occupancy um, units with support services at that facility, to which they they haven't released it yet. So the particulars on what target population they'll be working on, whether that's chronic or just homelessness in general, I don't know. Um, but it's exciting because um, there's been a lot of successes. It's one thing that providers were learning during COVID in communities, whereas that uh, in the initial lockdown phases there were large hotels that just sat vacant um and nobody so, was traveling right yeah. nobody was going anywhere yeah and so california did a, a really good project where they started purchasing as many of those hotels as they could and that was a way to quickly increase your housing stock if you converted them into 
housing. Um, and it's not a it's not an uncommon thing. You, New York had um, SROs for a hundred years um, until those there was a large scale investment in property in the cities and developed those out to more high end apartments. Um, but yeah, you saw it. Uh, people in poverty lived in SROs for long times where it was communal bathrooms and, you know, they, they were successful models, uh, because it was, it was an answer for housing for all and no matter the income. Sure. Um, so these hotel conversions do show some promise and, and something that I'm excited that the, the city of Chattanooga is investing in. And I look forward to working with the provider that is selected to operate that program. Yeah, I was going to ask, so is, is that something that, that your organization, the coalition, would get involved in in some way? Or what's your kind of involvement in things like that? Sure. Uh, the, the Chattanooga Regional Homeless Coalition, uh, we're, we are a continuum care lead agency. So what we do is we work at the system level. We work as uh, to build out best practices to train homeless assistance providers. One of our key functions is being the linkage between the federal government and local service providers and their funding. Um, we're the ones annually, when, or sometimes more than annually, but um, annually HUD releases uh, um, funds uh, on a competitive nature to communities, and one of the core responsibilities of the Homeless Coalition is ho hosting that competition. And, and the idea is to uh, fund projects that are performing well and if need to, reallocate funds from underperforming projects into higher-performing projects. Could, uh, could you give us an example of what would be some example of some of the projects that might get funded under that? Um, locally, um, the, the Chattanooga Community Kitchen, who okay. uh, will have a different name as of the release of this podcast. Okay. Um, but they're, they're a permanent supportive housing project. Okay. Um, very successful, very uh, performance-based. Um, volunteer Behavioral Health has rapid rehousing programs and permanent supportive housing programs. Um, AIM Center Housing, uh, they own structures, but they have permanent supportive housing for families. Um, and there's some other, out in the rural areas, we have some more rapid rehousing sure. programs as well. Um, <clears throat> which the competition is open to for any to apply um, each year. Um, it's one of those things that the the free market approach can be beneficial at times. Um, and, and really having successful projects compete. Now, there's not much of a sense of competition when it comes to the, the, the continuum of care. They work very closely with each other because of the agency that I work for is that, that, that administrative body of the community. Um, we offer out trainings. We, bring, we really work to bring together a diverse group of voices. The continuum of care is not an agency or a group of agencies. It's the community. It's anyone who's uh, passionate or dedicated around preventing and ending homelessness. Okay. Um, we have private citizens. We have the faith-based community. Um, we're, we're always looking to grow that that membership of the continuum of care because it, it's going to take all of us. And some of the information about, um, uh, I think it may have been in your bio, it, it mentioned something about work you've done to help in uh, veteran homelessness. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because there was some success in that area, wasn't there? Oh, there was. There, there was huge success um, in 2011. The I think it was the Biden administration. Um, they had um, released the Mayor's Challenge, in which they were challenging communities across the country to find effective in for veteran homelessness. 
then the United States Interagency Council on Homelessness created the criteria and benchmarks for what you had to do to be able to successfully meet that uh, achievement. At the time, I was working in West Tennessee's continuum care, which is a 23-county continuum care. And what we saw at that time was groundbreaking in the fact that Congress told the VA, step up. This is You're going to be a part of this. And and the VA really took a lot of the, the, the successes that had been done from HUD and other federal partners and built upon that. And their expansion of the Support Service for Veteran Families program, as well as their integration of the HUD VA Supportive Housing Program, which is a voucher program strictly for veterans, uh, enabled communities to really dig deep into that uh, effective end for veteran homelessness. So the community I was working with at that time, we started standing up these projects targeting that subpopulation. Um, and it it was eye-opening in the fact that if you had um, cross-governmental bodies working together on a problem, you, you could see significant reductions. Uh, nationally, we saw about a 48% reduction over the course of six years. Wow, that's impressive. It is. Um, and so... Talks to the power of working together and, okay. and, and having that relationship, right? Yeah. And, and it, especially with veterans, because access to... And not all veterans qualify, but a lot of them did. My experience was around 50% would qualify for VA healthcare. That was groundbreaking. Um, and, and a lot of them had been eligible, just didn't know. Or didn't... There had been some sort of disconnect at some point. So the federal criteria and benchmarks for ending veteran homelessness. There, there's a couple components about that that many communities are still working on. Um, luckily, we've, we've, we're shifted to someone else, another population now, but um, you, the first step is identification of all veterans experiencing homelessness. Um, and you have to identify them. You have to maintain a by-name list. You have to routinely check in with all of the interested parties and providers. So there's some accountability with it. That. It does. Um, now, if you had a veteran that was choosing to experience homelessness and didn't want housing, they, they didn't count in your, you know, in those metrics. Um, and then having that case conferencing, and then what you would do is you started to monitor your inflow versus outflow. Um, and you, it would wane, it, you know, it wax and wane month to month. But once you had a 90-day window, because what your target goal was um, having within a 90-day window, having more outflow than inflow, then that would set your, your, your base, and then you would replicate it in two more 90-day periods. Mm -hmm. And so communities that announced through the United States Interagency Council on Homelessness that they've effectively ended veteran homelessness, that's what they've done. Now, they've created a system that can rapidly place all veterans who wish for assistance in housing within 90 days. That's, that's what it's meaning. It, there was some, there's always a little bit of blowback when a community announces they've had that achievement and recognition by the federal government and that a reporter will instantly go find a veteran experience person, yeah, homelessness sure. and say, well, that's, this is not true. So a lot of us have changed the way we say it. It's an effective end. Okay. You know, it's a functional zero. Definite progress has yeah. been made. Yeah. Right. Uh, across the board, the homeless response system is functioning better than I've ever seen it in 20 years. That's great because I think a lot of people get, you know, feel dis I mean, and you should, we should feel discouraged about homelessness, but um, there's a lot of work being done to address it, which you've been talking about. But um, I guess 
where are you right now? Are you optimistic? Where, where do you think we're making progress and where do we need to do better? I, I'm, opti- I'm very optimistic in this. Um, I often tell my staff and colleagues that um, I, I, I see an end, I see the light at the end of the tunnel and the fact that I can go do custom cabinet work one day because that's my dream job, not this one. Oh, right. um, because the, the attention both at the federal, the state, and the local level, and also the attention um, from the community at large around this and understanding that, you know, housing people is, is not only humane, um, but it, it's a huge cost benefit on every community. So there, I'm very encouraged by a lot of the success being had. Um, programs are being innovative. Community members are engaging in those spaces. The faith-based community is really reaching out and trying to see where they fit in because uh, the faith-based community has a lot of resources. Sure. Um, sure. And they, they, would, they could m- quickly mobilize those faster than any state or federal funds. Um, but, you know, daily I'm encouraged by uh, people reaching out to see what they can do. Um, by organizations reaching out that had never done so. Um, COVID really brought the community together. Um, Made people think about what they're spending their focus on and priorities, I would say. Yeah, when they issued stay-at-home orders. (laughs) Where do you you stay if you don't have a home? Wow, yeah. Um, But it's one of the great things, and I can't speak to this enough, and even though it's still in its infancy, COVID brought about the uh, further conversation and partnership between the healthcare system and the homeless response systems. Oh, so that's um, a, a positive to, outcome. It's then. very positive. And trying to figure out how we can navigate um, some cross-system work. Chattanooga is one of five communities across the country piloting a healthcare and homelessness project over the course of three years to see, to try and figure out how those systems overlay with each other and how we can do so successfully. Um, having some some great results of that. And again, you know, I, I try not to be negative because uh, even though, you know, we talk about increases of homelessness and the barriers, I've been in this field for 20 years and the systems of care are, are performing better than they ever have. Now, some of this has contributed to higher uh, funding because of various uh, stimulus bills or acts that were put out by the federal government. And yet a lot of that assistance, like from the CARES Act, is sunsetting soon. You know, the, those funds are going away. And so we're already in the conversations of how do we keep this going? Um, and those partnerships are beautiful, especially with healthcare. Um, I, I remember throughout my career many times approaching healthcare systems and trying to talk about effective partnerships. And we get shut down really quick because of HIPAA. You know, they would sure, think, well, sure. we can't do this. Um, well... There's a way to have any relationship, you know, uh, just believe just in th- it and figure it out. Think about new ways, right? Yeah. yeah. You, let, let's talk just a second. Um, you, you said you were encouraged by the number of people reaching out. If, if people want to help, what are some of the ways that, that you can help? We'll, we'll obviously be putting in our show notes and on the website links to uh, the coalition, both locally and, and nationally. Mm-hmm. Um and people can donate, but um, people can also get involved locally. What, what's the best way to do that? Sure. And and I have no doubt that your audience will be very large and probably worldwide um, within the I United States. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> one day within the United States. Well, one day, and then yeah. they'll, be, they'll stumble back on this episode Absolutely. because you'll have plenty Absolutely. of content. Um, but what what you can do is reach out. Uh, you can easily Google search "continuum care" for okay. where you live. Um, and it'll direct you to whoever your lead agency is. So that's what the Homeless Coalition is locally. 
um, reach out to them. Be strategic in it, and because the coalition's got that that thirty thousand foot view, they're going to know all the different organizations and what their roles are and where the real needs are. I yeah. would think, and can help match what your what your desire is to what that community's need or that oh. that agency's need is. You know, that's so, a good point. Like you know. What you have, everybody has specific talents and skills, mm-hmm. and they might really be needed in for a specific role. Yeah, um, and I'm not going to take away. You know, I'm sorry that I laugh at this, but you know, it's quite often. Sorry, a couple times okay. throughout the year, we'll get um, a phone call that, "Hey, we did a canned food drive, and I've got two trucks of canned canned goods coming your way." And I'm like, I don't know what to do with it, or clothing drives. And I'm not taking away from those. It's they're beautiful things, oftentimes put on by small civic groups or churches or sure. children groups. Reach out to your continuing care who can connect you with a provider who can accept that or find out what the real needs are. Find out what the I real mean, need yeah. is. Because it could be that the agency that runs a soup kitchen really really doesn't need the canned goods because they've they've been in operation. They know the connection to get be able to get the uh, food at a reasonable rate and they've negotiated that. But they may need a volunteer. That's what I'd say. Yeah, maybe they need volunteer servers or people to help prepare the food. Or they may need some you to do a utensil drive, right. or you know, closer to quarter uh, to cold weather months. Um, everyone does do you know coat drives and warm warm clothing drives. Um, but really work to connect with a provider um, and through your continuing care because that's gonna um, that's what they're there for. Mike, one of the things I like to ask everybody that appears on the podcast is just kind of a, a simple question. What makes you feel most at home? Hmm, that's a good one. Uh, I've lived so many places in my life. Um, I feel most at home surrounded by loved ones, um, and it doesn't matter where it is. Um, Location's not as important as I could the feel people it. you surround yourself yep. with. Yep, I could feel just at home in a hotel, or but it, being there with those that I love and those that love me. Um, the structures are relevant to me. That's a great answer. Great answer. Well, Mike, thanks so much for joining us today. This is a, a really important topic, and I really appreciate the work that you and your organization are doing to um, to fight homelessness and to work on this issue. And again, we will have information about the coalition on our website and in the show notes, so I encourage you to, to check that out. Um, but again, thanks for being with us. Thanks, and I just want to encourage your uh, listeners to believe in this with me, that homelessness has an end, and... You know, just thank you for your time. Thank you. If you're interested in making a donation to help fight homelessness or learning more about the work of the Chattanooga Regional Homeless Coalition, you can visit the organization's website at homelesscoalition.org. I've included a link in the show notes and on the resources page of the podcast website, homewhereyoubelong.com. We want to help you continue experiencing that feeling of being at home wherever you are. So please subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts and visit our website at homewhereyoubelong.com. Want to join in on discussions, ask questions, or share feedback and ideas? Join our Facebook group, visit us on Instagram, or send an email to chip at homewhereyoubelong.com. We'll see you next time. Proud member of the Podnuga Network.